science enthusiasts. My name is Jason Zakowski. I'm a high school chemistry teacher and a science communicator, but I'm also the dog dad of Bunsen and Beaker, the science dogs on social media. If you love science and you love pets, you've come to the right place. Put on your lab coat, put on your safety glasses, and hold on to your tail. This is the Science Podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Science Podcast. We hope you're happy and healthy out there. Oh my goodness, do you know what the weather's like right now? I know I always start the podcast talking about the weather. That's what Canadians talk about. It's raining. It's raining in December. I am trying to remember the last time it rained in December, and I literally can't. I can't remember the last time it rained in December, and it was six degrees Celsius yesterday. So this El Nino thing is definitely a factor, and it's melted all the snow, and it's weird out. I don't know what the weather's like for you folks, but it is weird for us in Alberta, Canada. That aside, I think we'll have some interesting stories in the family section. Today, we'll probably chat more about it. All right, what's on tap in the science podcast today? In science news, we're going to talk about a giant balloon that observes dark matter. What? Dark matter balloon? Mm-hmm. And in pet science, um, we were forwarded this really interesting article about how you can donate or will your pacemaker to your dog. And I didn't know either of those things were a thing. So I'm going to cover it today. Our guest and ask an expert is the hilarious Dr. Dan Riskin, who's a bat expert among a lot of other things. And it is a great interview. Uh, he chats with us about the, his time on The Tonight Show and talking to Jay Leno. All right, the bad joke. <laughs> what do you call a forum for bats? Well, an echo chamber. <laughs> Okay, that one was pretty good. And what's a vampire bat's favorite fruit? A nectarine. Okay, on with the show, because there's no time like science time. This week in science news, yeah, uh, we're going to be talking about a balloon and dark matter. All right, now, I've had very, very smart people way smarter than me, try to explain dark matter multiple times. I'm thinking of uh, like Dr. Sophia Gad Nasser. Sophia actually uh, just completed her PhD. Very cool. She's She studies dark matter. And the dark matter has like a bunch of... Okay. Now, again, I don't... I have to uh, remind myself about what dark matter does every time I talk about it. Uh, dark matter, we can't detect it in conventional manners, like it, it doesn't interact with light. So our light telescopes can't pick it up. It doesn't interact like things, things go right through it. So we can't detect it in any ways we could scoop it up. Like it's a rock or anything like that, but it does have some really important impacts. So scientists say like gravitational influences. Now, even when we can't see it, it exists. We know that dark matter exists because of its gravitational effects. And the, the fact that it is interfering or affecting the motion of galaxies and galaxy clusters is one of the big pieces of evidence that dark matter exists. It has something to do with how cosmic structures form themselves and not just like how they move, but how they form. Also, it does have something to do with the background microwave radiation left over from the early universe 
Um, there's fluctuations observed in this. Like there's things that they don't didn't expect. Why is this different? It probably dark matter. And then lastly, dark matter can cause gravitational lensing where a field around a massive object bends and distorts. Scientists figure there's as much as 27% of everything in the universe is dark matter, everything. And another huge chunk of that is dark energy. And the stuff that makes up us and what we see and we can interact with is like a tiny fraction of everything. It really makes my brain hurt. And I hope I did it justice explaining. Um, but this this stuff, like think about how much of this stuff there is out there. And like understanding this is a big part in astrophysics and cosmology. So in comes a big balloon. Now, <laughs> not the balloons that uh, floated over the United States and uh, their the spy balloons. Those became really funny storylines and texts from Bunsen. No, this is from NASA. It's called the Super Bit Payload. It has a very weird shape. It's a pumpkin-shaped balloon. It's a balloon and it was inflated with helium, but it's not a small balloon. 500,000 cubic meters of helium, to be exact. That's large enough to fit 60 Goodyear blimps. It gets even more. This balloon is carrying NASA's Super Pressure Balloon Borne Image Telescope, Superbit. And this telescope, the hope was it would get up high enough to take readings to then analyze for dark matter. So NASA sent it up and it traversed the Southern Hemisphere five times in 40 days. That probe did its proby probing and it probed the cosmos for dark matter. There was a whole bunch of issues with this thing. <laughs> the satellite communications with it failed early. They couldn't get data from it wirelessly. So whatever it was doing, it kept to itself. And because of heavy clouds on the sixth pass, they were pretty sure it didn't get any data because the telescope was powered by the sun. It was a solar powered telescope. So the balloon was brought down and they were worried about it crashing and getting blown apart because it was attached to the balloon. So the, the super bit balloon actually had data capsules that kind of like poo -poo shot off of it. And those data capsules as a backup, they had their own parachute. Now here's where things get kind of silly and, and interesting. Each capsule was about 1.3 kilograms. So it's about four pounds. It was foam wrapped in a waterproof chicken roasting bag. Good job, NASA. Luckily they had bright orange parachutes. Now this didn't land like anywhere normal. No, it went 60 kilometers into rural Argentina. NASA had to send out a search and rescue team to gather up the capsules using like little pings from the capsules. Like, hello, it's like Marco Polo, but in Argentina and you're looking for a tiny capsule. They found the first capsule about four kilometers from the predicted landing site. They found the second capsule two kilometers away from its predicted landing site, but it was meters away from where it signaled it landed. And how and why was it not exactly where it landed when it said it landed there? Okay, the best NASA can figure is a cougar 
saw it come down, thought, hey, that's interesting, and drug it around and hucked it. Luckily, both capsules were unscathed, thanks to that chicken roasting bag and the foam it was packed in. (laughs) So uh, they recovered the capsules, and now it's going to take them you know, months, maybe years to analyze all of the data to map the distribution of dark matter in the universe. So um, one of the things that somebody from NASA said is they're like, uh, we maybe need to think better about our backup plans. I don't know. I think it worked pretty good. The chicken roasting pan kept the little capsules nice and dry and they weren't eaten by cougars. I'm interested to see what data comes out of this, and you bet the Science Podcast will cover that when it happens. That's science news for this week. This week in pet science, I am going to cover something that maybe some of you already know about. For many of you who follow the Science Podcast, you probably follow Bunsen and Beaker on social media. We do have fairly large social media accounts, and we get tagged all the time by amazing articles, too many for me to cover. Somebody tagged us with... Um, an article reminding everybody that if you have a pacemaker, you can will it to your dog. And I was like, what? Number one, you can will your pacemaker to your dog. Number two, why would a dog need a pacemaker? And I was ignorant. I did not know anything about how dogs may need to have a pacemaker and how a human pacemaker could work for them. So that's what I'm going to cover today. And I apologize if this is something that you already know about. Dogs can definitely develop heart conditions such as atrioventricular blocks or sick sinus syndrome that leads them to having irregular heart rhythms or a slower heart rate. This is the same thing that happens in humans. These symptoms are things like the dog is tired all the time. They're very weak. It could just randomly faint. And then, of course, the symptoms get dire from that point forward. A pacemaker can be implanted surgically in the dog. It's placed under the skin on the left side of their chest and the leads or the wires from the pacemaker are then threaded through their veins and attached to their heart muscle. And the pacemaker literally continuously monitors the dog's heart rate. If your dog's heart rate falls below the predetermined threshold, that pacemaker sends impulses to stimulate their heart muscle, prompting it to beat at a normal rate. So when things get irregular, too slow, too fast, the pacemaker's there to keep the beat. And just like in humans, your dog with a pacemaker needs to have regular vet checkups. The vet can check to make sure the pacemaker is doing what it should do, and you can find out how much battery life your pacemaker has. And the wild thing is, is that these pacemakers and dogs significantly improve their quality of life and maintains their heart rate at a normal level. Um, And they can live a normal life with their pacemaker. In humans, the first pacemaker was surgically implanted in 1960, literally does the same thing because guess what? The difference between a human and dog pacemaker is nothing. They use the same equipment, they use the same technology, and the appliance that's used for a dog is essentially the same equipment as humans. Thus, this is true. If you yourself have a pacemaker, you can will your pacemaker to your dog if your dog needs it after your death. 
Now, another thing that you can do is your pacemaker could be donated to dogs because it is extremely expensive. As you can imagine, if you don't have pet insurance, you're looking at like five grand minimum to even think about putting a pacemaker into your dog. It continues though. If the pacemaker outlives your dog, you can donate the pacemaker to the next dog. It does take a little bit of refurbishing. So it's not like you can just take a pacemaker straight out of a person and put it straight into a dog. Obviously, well, we both have hearts. We're both mammals. There's a little bit of differences. So the different organizations that do this, and for example, the University of Missouri, um, they have vets there that refurbish them, tweak it a little bit. And within 24 hours, they could have that pacemaker into a dog. I've just been reading some uh, really heartwarming case studies um, of dogs that had pacemakers put into them. They had they can go from being very symptomatic, collapsing every five to ten minutes, like because the heart isn't beating properly, gasping for breath, and l- literally as after the pacemaker was put in them, turned on, that they're good to go. They the dog feels good, and the dog can go on to live a normal, healthy life. In Canada, there's something called the Heart Rhythm Alliance. You can download a little form. Once you download the form, you can fill it out and figure out where your pacemaker is going to go. The more I research this, it seems like a lot of veterinary colleges or universities have places where you can drop off or donate pacemakers. Instead of having like one link, I'm thinking that any any place near you, you could probably do your own Google search. Therefore, you're not thinking about out of state or out of province, a place you could donate your pacemaker. The pacemaker either from a human, your own pacemaker when you die, or you you know, the pacemaker that lives your pet. I'm glad I did this because I learned something. Um, I learned something that I think probably was more common knowledge than I thought. Remember, I only, we only know Bunsen and Beaker and then Callan before, and both, all of them have good hearts that we know about. And you generally only know about disorders in dogs if you yourself have a dog with that disorder. That's pet science for this week. Hello, everybody. Here's some ways you can keep the science podcast free. Number one, in our show notes, sign up to be a member of our Paw Pack Plus community. It's an amazing community of folks who love pets and folks who love science. We have tons of bonus Bunsen and Beaker content there, and we have live streams every Sunday with our community. It's tons of fun. Also, think about checking out our merch store. We've got the Bunsen stuffy, the Beaker stuffy, and now the Ginger stuffy. That's right. Ginger the science cat has a little replica. It's adorable. It's so soft with the giant fluffy tail, safety glasses, and a lab coat. And number three, if you're listening to the podcast on any place that rates podcasts, Give us a great rating and tell your family and friends to listen too. Okay, on with the show. Back to the interviews. It's time for Ask an Expert, and I'm thrilled to have Dr. Dan Riskin, evolutionary biologist, TV personality, and producer. Is that true, Dan? Sure. You're a producer? Yeah, and I'm, I do lots of things. I'm just busy science-related guy. In, I in love that. I love that you have a Swiss army knife of things that you've got your fingers into. That's great, Dan. Yeah, except <laughs> I don't have my finger stuck into a Swiss army knife, which would hurt tremendously. Oh, so that's, uh, that's the one thing I don't do. To uh, pro, pro tip everybody uh, from, from Dan himself right there. Um, <laughs> where are you in the world? Where are you calling into the show from? 
I am in Toronto. I am mm. originally from the fine province of Alberta, where I believe you are, right? You're in that's, your, that's where, true. where do you live? I live uh, like central Alberta, Red Deer, but like it, on a farm. Yeah, like near Red Deer. <laughs> but where near yeah. Red Deer? Like which way from Red Deer? Uh, east, east mm. on towards like the, you know, the sticks as they call it. Sure. Yeah. No, that I mean, I've driven through, I've stopped in Red Deer plenty of times. I've driven through Red Deer a million times. As a, yeah. growing up at Edmonton, you go to Calgary often, yeah. or you go through Calgary on your way to Banff or whatever. So I've been yeah. through Red Deer many times and spent a little time, you know, Sylvan Lake and all that stuff. But uh, I have not uh, been there in a while, but I do, I do love that part of the world very much. It's just really pretty. Oh, you can't beat the mountains. I don't no. know if you're, I don't know if I'd miss gasoline alley, which is probably where you stopped halfway between. <laughs> yeah. And Calgary. Um, I, but man, the mountains, you can't I do miss it a little. I mean, not as much as I miss the mountains, but uh, I gotta <laughs> say there, there's a charm. There's a charm to Alberta and there's a charm to the space of the West. Like mm. when you live in Toronto, you just don't have the space. You just don't get that much room on the road away from other cars. You don't get that big sky. Like it just, it's not the same. It just feels really different. Oh, uh, you're getting me all verklempt about my province that I love. Um, you should. Thanks. You should love it. It's a great province. <laughs> so what's your training in science? I introduced you as an evolutionary biologist, uh, Dr. Riskin. So what's going on there? Uh, okay. So I uh, I have a PhD, which is why I'm doctor. So I'm not a medical doctor, mm-hmm. but I do. I am an expert on the biomechanics of bats and how they move. So mm-hmm. I uh, grew up in Edmonton, went to the U of A, uh, went to the University of Alberta, um, got a Bachelor of Science. And... Didn't really like have ambitions of becoming a scientist, but I'd read this great book in high school about bats and I loved it and I loved bats. And so whenever I had a (laughs) assignment or whatever, I would always just do it on bats. And so when I finished (laughs) my undergrad, I was hanging out with my buddy, uh, John Clare, who was a grad student at the time. He lived on campus and I was sleeping on a couch in his living room most nights, uh, like lots of weekends. Uh, going down to White Ave, having a great time. And, you know, I, I w- didn't have big career ambitions, but he said to me, you should apply for a scholarship. Like you might, you might enjoy grad school because you could do more of this bat stuff. And I thought, well, there's no way I'm ever going to get it at grad school. But I applied and I, I applied for the scholarship and I got it. And in fact, when I got it, I remember a professor saying to me, you have the worst grades of anybody I've ever seen get one of these. <laughs> oh God, what? <laughs> I don't know if that's a compliment. I, I feel like it's a compliment. It's an insult. I don't know what it was, but there it is. I got this. So then once I got it, I I asked the guy who had written that book about bats that had inspired me mm. so much. I said, could I do, could I work with you? And he said, absolutely. So I went off to Toronto. That's sort of the first time I left Edmonton. And I went off to Toronto and did a master's. And then once I had my master's, uh, I lived in Victoria for a little while. And then I went and did a PhD at Cornell in the States. And I worked on vampire bats, and uh, then I worked as a scientist for a while. I was at Brown University as a postdoc, and then um, I finally lined up a faculty position and thought I was going to be a professor, but then my career kind of took me in a different direction, and I ended up hosting Daily Planet on Discovery for eight years, seven or eight years, and uh, living in Toronto and doing that. And now I'm sort of a freelance science guy working in media, uh, doing a bunch of news and doing web stuff and talking to you and and giving public talks and stuff like that and just spreading the gospel like you are about <laughs> how great science is. Yeah, science rocks. You come highly recommended by some of my colleagues. They saw you speak at uh I believe it was in Banff at a teachers convention actually. So It was Canmore. Let's not Canmore. I'm not Sorry. to split hairs, but it was Canmore. It was outside I did the not go. Parks. You're right. It is Canmore. Yes. Sorry. 
It was that was a great crowd. They, they were a lot of fun. I mean, I love interacting with teachers because they're sort of doing the heavy lifting, but the their mission is similar to mine. So I come swooping in with lots of ideas and and sort of uh, you know just exciting energy about what's happening with AI and what's happening mm-hmm. with biology and all the potential for getting kids jazzed about science and bringing great stuff to them. But, <laughs> you know, then I'm speaking to the people that are doing the hard work. And so yeah. they're really invested in what I'm, t- what I'm invested in, but also I have so much respect for them. Like I really get a lot out of interacting with those people because I, uh-huh. they inspire me. Right. And yourself included, you're a teacher for goodness sake. So I don't have to talk about them in the third person. I can talk <laughs> in the second person, but you, you know, you're doing, you're doing, it's not easy. Like it's one thing to inspire a bunch of kids by appearing on a TV show or even coming in and giving a talk for an hour and then disappearing again. But to go through the grind of, (laughs) of showing, you know, what it means to be curious and what it means to, to work hard at something that's difficult and to not be able to see the light at the end of the tunnel just yet. Um, that's a, that's a hard job and it's one of the most important jobs in the world. So I, I love spending time with teachers. You know, Hey Dan, I got, this is totally off topic. I can, I'm going to ask you anyways. Sure. Um, my colleagues told me one of the things you mentioned, you brought up AI. I, I am super interested in AI. I opened my big mouth at a staff meeting and now I'm the AI guy, the AI guy for our division. Um, so that was my fault. Cool. You, you spoke about, about trying to make a scientist using AI. Um, wait, 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 wait. Keep going. Keep trying to make a scientist you, using AI. Because you put stuff into an image generator and it kept oh, yeah. giving you like old men. And then you asked for a, a female scientist and it like really made some sexy scientists. Yeah. Um, well, it's, you know what? I think that it is true that it's got some problems with, with gender stereotypes. That's one of the things about the, all these large language models is they're trained on an imperfect data set, right? They're mm-hmm. trained on, and, and the the companies often don't tell you what they're trained on. So mm-hmm. uh, you, you just know it got it from the internet. And so like, let's say it's Reddit. Reddit is notoriously sexist, right? It, mm-hmm. It's a place that, you know, there's some good stuff in there, but you have to have a serious filter built in. And so the idea that you train yourself on it and that becomes sort of the Bible that you're preaching from um, is problematic because you're going to have a whole bunch of stuff in your world that is not appropriate. And Mm. one of the challenges that people have when they're building these large language models is that you can't just sort of try to try to steer it so that it avoids those things. You have to have it know what the bad things are so that it can avoid them. Right. So like Mm. it has to know what it racism looks like so that it can flag it. If it realizes it's about to say something or if it gets a request or whatever, it Mm. has to have a very good idea of what racism is. And so you really, you have to build a model that's, that's sort of wary of these things. And so there's a lot that goes into them, but still, despite the efforts, sometimes these biases come out. And one of the funny things that's going on right now with Dali, which is OpenAI's visual uh, generative AI, which yeah. means you say, can you give me a picture of a garbage can? And it gives you a good picture of a garbage can. Um, one of the issues it has right now that people are trying to, that people are making fun of is that whenever you ask it for a person, it gives you a smoking hot, usually smoking hot person, right? So like I, I needed a picture. I, yeah, I'm remembering now the connection to what, the way you introduced this. <laughs> I wanted a picture so I was talking about AI as something that, that scientists or the teachers have to juggle in the classroom. And so yeah, I said, yeah. okay, I would love a picture of a scientist juggling a Bunsen burner and like an Erlenmeyer flask and some other scientisty things. So give me a, a, a teacher in a classroom who is a science teacher juggling some science instruments. And yeah. the picture I got was like the hottest picture of a teacher I have ever seen. <laughs> I've seen a lot of pictures of teachers. Like this was 
out of control. And I was like, they whoa, whoa, seen whoa. Me yet, Dan. Yeah, but that's true. We no, have I mean, this, this is just audio. <laughs> Your voice is, is very attractive, but but <laughs> this was visually stunning, is the least I could say. The point it was distracting, right? It was it, if somebody saw that image, they'd be they wouldn't think it was about the juggling. <laughs> they would think it was oh, about okay, like about smoking hot teachers or something like that. So yeah. I had to like change my input and say, could you make the person less attractive, please? But this apparently is like a thing that comes up. And I've heard other technology columnists talk about this. And it's just, it's very funny. But one of the neat things you said, you know, by saying you were interested in AI, they suddenly made you sort of the the head of AI for your region or whatever it is. Yeah, Um, I think that's appropriate. I think that's because the thing is that we all have this feeling of like, well, I don't know much about AI, but I, I guess I'm curious. But like chat GPT has been around for just over a year. Like as we record this, it's been one year yeah, exactly. A year, yes. A year. And, and so like if you said, oh, you know, I missed the I missed the, the iPhone thing because I didn't get one in the first 12 months. It's like, no, you people got iPhones much later. Oh, you didn't you, you didn't use the Internet in the first six months that there was an Internet at CERN. That's all oh, you missed your chance to learn about the Internet. No, like there are open <laughs> like people are invited to get involved, get excited about AI, learn about it. You haven't missed it. If you're listening to this and you're like, oh, I haven't done any AI <laughs> stuff, like get in there. Just yeah. just. And the thing is, you'll find stuff because it's a lot of the emergent properties of these interesting AI things are not like they're surprises. And so it, you might find out something by, by creating a prompt and getting a surprise when you get your answer, like by getting a hot scientist instead of just a normal scientist, like you were expecting you, you've discovered something about the system that is important and novel and has value. And so, I mean, that's not a a unique discovery that I made. Other people have talked about it, but it's valuable. And that's, What's exciting about AI in the spirit of science itself is that we're discover we're we're probing something we don't understand. We're we're learning about it, and anybody could do that. Yeah, I love that. Just as an aside, I found out that the greatest thing that a ChatGPT has allowed me to be is I can teach math. Like uh, that's something that I like high level, high level math in in high school. Not mm. something I'm trained in. So kids sometimes come to help for help from me. You know, like they're in my chemistry class and they're like, so and so is busy. Can you help me with this like calculus? And I'm like, oh, I don't think so. Sorry, kid. Go find your math <laughs> teacher. And I just throw the problem into AI and I was like, please teach this to me like I'm an idiot. And then I can help the kids. Yeah, it's um, amazing. It's amazing. It's amazing. It's a, it, that, it that is, is great. She's been a game changer for me to help my students. Um, well, and that's just it. And, and like, I, so there's a paper I came across today showing that writing instructors at the university level uh, have not have not thrown the towel in. Like they're they're using it. They they're not only thirteen percent of they pulled a whole bunch of instructors at universities and said, mm-hmm. should we ban this? Only thirteen percent said yes. The rest said, no, no, hang on, we've got something here that's valuable. Let's not have it write the essay for the kid, but yeah. let's brainstorm an outline. Let's yeah. write a first draft and show it to uh, an AI model and see if the AI model can tell us what's wrong with it. Yeah. Let's uh, let's let's check for typos. Like there are a whole bunch of ways in which these these tools. Not only can be used theoretically, but people will be using, if not already using. And so you're doing a disservice to your students if you're not showing them how to use these tools. And also role modeling your curiosity about a tool that is new that you don't know that doesn't have an instruction manual for. Right. And you're just you're like, I'm just learning this like you are. And that's, I think, a great way to show students that you mean what you say in class when you say just be curious and try to learn this and don't worry about failure that if you're doing that then you become a much more credible uh, person to listen to when they're giving that advice. Oh, cool. You mentioned you were like, 
you were all in on bats. Why? What's what is it about bats that got you into them and in your your study to like actually pursue advanced education studying them? Well, the thing about bats is they're kind of goofy. They're 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 <laughs> charismatic. They're they're kind of ugly Aww. at first, right? Like they're very cute. Don't get me wrong, but no, with their so first cute. impression, you're like, hmm. I don't, I don't know about this. Like they're kind of weird. They're spooky. And I can remember going to the lake in Alberta, um, uh, just, just North of Edmonton. Um, I remember going to the lake and there was a big bonfire and there were some bats flying around the bonfire. And I was like, what is that really a bat? And like, you just instantly were transported to Transylvania. You were just like, this is just the most amazing thing. And then, you know, just when I read this book, it, it was funny. It was not, it was not like reading a textbook. It was literally reading a textbook, but it wasn't like reading a textbook. It was just funny stories about things that bats did that made the author curious and the ways that they followed it up. And sometimes the thing that made them curious was a, a, what you would expect a, a biologist to be curious about, like what do they eat or how do they catch moths or whatever. But sometimes right. it was like, how come the penis is so big? And I, when I was in <laughs> high school, I was like, this is amazing. Like, I, I can't believe it. And I got to say the the whole bat penis thing just keeps showing up in my life. A paper just came out in current biology uh, this week about bat penises. No, it was last week. Bat penises. Th- th- there's a bat in Europe and the penis is so big that as far as they can tell, it didn't, it never goes inside the female because it doesn't fit. And so there's like a, this huge evolutionary question about why that would evolve. And it's super interesting and it still makes me giggle. I still, I still think that's really funny. So the part of me that, that found that amusing in high school never went away. And I still find that stuff amusing. But along the way, I've become curious about other stuff too. And so as the as I've learned more, it's been the, the more sophisticated questions have come into my focus. And so I spent a lot of time trying to understand how animals move and how they how bats walk and how bats fly and how bats land on the ceiling and what noises they make when they're flying and how that relates to the way they're moving. And um, it's just, it's super fun to set up a high-speed camera and record a bat flying past and then watch the video and try to take it apart and not take the bat apart, but take the video apart and try to understand what's happening. It's it's <laughs> just really fun. It's like a fun game. And so um, I just followed my curiosity and, and just kept doing that as long as it was it was leading in a in a generally normal path, and so that led me through grad school. That led me to a faculty position, and then it was this offer to to do Daily Planet in Canada yeah. that dragged me back across the border into Canada, and and I've been in Toronto ever since. But um, it's I I never really had like this plan about where it's all going to lead or get got into bats because I could see that you know well there's probably going to be a pandemic caused by a bat in about 2020 so <laughs> I should probably you know buy buy now and get in on this it, that wasn't the point I just followed my my curiosity. <laughs> uh, if somebody had told me this morning when I woke up I'd be talking to somebody about bat penises I would have been very skeptical. <laughs> I would have been like okay. most of my days involve talking about bat penises. At least they have in the last couple of weeks because I can't shut up about it. It's really amazing. I mean, the, this this bat. It's it's called a serotine. It's in the same genus as the big brown bat that lives in Canada. Yeah. And so it it basically looks very, very similar. And big brown bats, I haven't looked at a big brown bat's penis very carefully in, I don't think if I ever have, but I will now because I'm very curious to see how it compares. But they've got video in this, in this, uh, in this paper where there's a male and there's a female and it's filmed in the attic of a church in the Netherlands. And the female is kind of facing the camera. It's it's kind of like, I've, I've looked at your website. You've got some videos sometime of like a pond near your house with like beavers and moose and stuff yeah exactly it's a whole canadian thing 
Yeah, it's great. Well, this is like that, except it's in the attic of a church, and it's looking at the place where the bats are roosting, and this one female is facing its belly towards the camera, and the male kind of spoons behind her and gets behind her, and then this this arm appears, <laughs> but it's not an arm, and then it gets into position, and it starts moving. I'm not going to get into the details. I don't know how young <laughs> your listeners get, but it's an amazing video, and I can't shut up about it. I mean, I've I like everybody who I've talked to is like, okay, Dan, we get it. You like bat penises. Okay. Let it go. I, but I'm it does also that I'm going to have to answer some very, very tough ca- questions from my wife if she checks my browser. History. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, but the thing is, like, I mean, you teach high school. I was in yeah. high school when I first read about bat penises. And I remember having this sense of like, I can't get in trouble for this because it's science. Like I'm yeah. reading a science book back here. I'm in the, I'm in the classroom reading a science book and like, just because I'm reading about penises and like getting away with something, if the teacher came and said, what are you reading? I would say it's science. And like, that has been, it's true. Like we're having a conversation about science because it is an interesting evolutionary question. Why you would ever evolve a, a, a penis that doesn't go inside because it seems like it's less efficient at delivering sperm, which yeah, is exactly. like the whole point of of every like why have a penis if it doesn't do that that's the whole point of sex is to pass on your dna so it's an interesting question the irony dan is i'm like literally today with my grade nines i was talking about sexual reproduction that's part of our curriculum in alberta the the differences between external and internal fertilization Mm. so I might bring this up because uh, I'm sure they'd be find it interesting and also quite giggly. So yeah, well, I'll send you the paper and um, okay. yeah, please do. <laughs> I will send you the paper and th- you'll, there'll be a link to the video, which you nice. probably don't want to show your students. That's well, probably going to get you in uh, trouble, uh, but uh, you can tell them like, about uh, it. They know how to work. Parent, the parent informed letter there. I don't know. Yeah. Don't show them the video, right. but you can, in fact, don't show them anything. Just tell them about it. But what's interesting is that uh, birds do the same thing. So birds do what's called cloaca kissing, cloacal kissing, because hmm. With birds, they just have like a, an opening that the sperm come out of. It's just like a hole. And yeah. then the female has like this opening that the egg comes out of. But when they mate, um, you know, the, the male gets on top of the female. But all they do is touch their cloacas together. It's two holes touching. And he passes sperm through that. And that's kind of what the bats are doing now with this mm-hmm. penis that doesn't go inside anymore, which is mm-hmm. really weird. But it's the only mammal that's thought to do that, it, it, which is, is super interesting. Oh, my God. I think I saw... This is this paper just came out, right? Yeah, this week. I saw I saw it and it I saw the headline and I skipped it. Um, <laughs> that's good. That's good thinking. That's a, that's a smart. Dang it. Yeah, <laughs> I could no, have been more informed. <laughs> uh, listen, I, when, normally when those keywords show up in a headline, you're right to filter that out. You're right to say, nope, I don't need to look at that. That is not going to lead me to anything that is going to help my career or life <laughs> or anything. So let's move on. But this one, I'm telling you, it's gold, Jerry. It's gold. I love it. Well, okay. Aside from the whole uh, bat penises thing, are there some other things you've learned about bats that you just love telling the public? Oh, I, I mean, there's so much. It's yeah. uh, there's an infinite amount. So my claim to fame is that um, I got curious about how bats crawl. Um, most oh. bats don't walk very well on the ground. Um, yeah. If you take a big brown or a little brown, something you would find in Alberta, and you put it on the ground, it'll it can shuffle along, but it doesn't do great, and it will try to get up a wall and fly away when it can. Mm. And some bats won't even take a step, but there are a couple of bats that walk really, really well. And one of them is the common vampire bat and vampire bats walk like they, Oh yeah. They fold their wings up and they walk like Bram Stoker's Dracula. It is creepy as all get out. They fold the wing up. They walk on their thumbs and their hind feet. And so I was curious about how they walk. 
to be honest, part of the reason I happened to be curious about how bats walk is because I knew full well that if I wanted to ask that question, I was going to somehow, somebody was going to pay for me to go to, to the tropics to go see Ben. <laughs> so like that was part of how I chose that question, but <laughs> it happened. I went to Trinidad. I went there for two great field seasons with my advisor, with an undergrad um, who was helping out. And at one point, my advisor brought his family. So he had his young kids there. And we were catching vampire bats in the in the woods. And like, what? it is so fun. I mean, you're watching out for snakes and army ants. And like, it's the real deal. But you you set up a net and you have no idea what kind of bat you're going to catch. And bats fly in and you're trying to identify them. And there's like, I think it's 60 different species of bats that live in Trinidad, which is outrageous i mean there's like i think nine in alberta or something like that N- nothing against alberta but if you want diversity you go to the tropics right but vampire bats uh, are one of them diversity increases the closer you get to the equator that was last week's lesson oh there you go okay well <laughs> i'm glad that came in helpful and so the the bats so we caught these vampire bats and then we put them on this custom built treadmill and the treadmill was totally like it was, I mean, it was held together with duct tape. It was awesome. Um, it had a power <laughs> drill that was connected to one of the axles and you squeeze the power drill to make the treadmill go. And so we had these vampire bats and then we made them walk on the treadmill. And we recorded them with high-speed cameras. And I discovered, my claim to fame is that I discovered that vampire bats can run. Nobody knew that before, but I have this high-speed video that's on YouTube now of a vampire bat running on a treadmill. And that is my thing. Like I'm, I'm the guy that put vampire bats on treadmills. If you when I die, that's what it'll say on my gravestone. There's nothing else I can do that I'll be ever be as proud of, except my kids. But that is work the off thing. all that fatty blood they just had. Yeah, exactly. Well, actually, it's funny. Blood uh, does not c- contain very much fat at all. That's no, one touche. of the that was I, as soon as I said that, I knew that was wrong. <laughs> it's actually, but that's one of the things that's really neat. Is like how the, how do they handle a food that has no fat? And so they, it, fat is really hard to come by for them. And so they can starve to death in like two days because they really can't build up fat reserves. And so mm. their food is almost all protein. And so one really neat thing about vampire bats. I mean, you opened the door here. You said, what's interesting about bats? So I'm going to tell you a random <laughs> thing about I will listen bats. for three hours if we had time. Go. Oh, okay, go so these vampire bats, when they start, to, so they drink blood. That's all they eat. They don't eat fruit. They don't eat insects. They just drink blood. This vampire bat lands on the ground next to a sleeping cow. It walks up to the cow. It puts its face up against the cow. It has heat sensors on its face to detect where blood comes close to the skin. It shaves the area with its teeth. And then it makes a little divot with its front teeth. So it doesn't stick in its fangs and suck. It just, it like makes a little divot and then it licks the divot. And it's sort of like if you nicked yourself shaving, you bleed a little bit, but their saliva has all these proteins in them so that the the blood keeps coming. And then here's, here's where it gets interesting with the, the blood and the protein is that they're drinking this stuff, but it's almost all water. It's almost There's barely anything to it. It's almost all water. And so the first thing the bat has to do is dump the excess water. So it fills its stomach as much as it can, but it is pumping with its kidneys. It is working its tail off to get rid of all that excess water. So it's peeing like crazy. And so what you get (laughs) is a bat with its face up against the bleeding cow for like 40 minutes drinking and peeing. And so they're like basically a living filter trying to get rid of all that water. (laughs) Oh my God. It's crazy. And then when they get filled, they weigh 50% more than they did before they started eating. So like that is so much food. Then they fly back to the roost and they start digesting it, but now they're breaking down proteins. And when you break down proteins, you get tons of nucleic acids. And for that, you need to get rid of them with your kidneys and you need as much water as possible, but they don't have that much water because they peed it all out. And so (laughs) 
all of a sudden they go to a, a regime where they need as much, like they're desperately trying to conserve as much water as they can. And their kidneys look like the kidney of a desert animal, extremely efficient at pulling every drop of water out of their, out of their food that they can possibly get and using it as, as well as possible to get rid of those nitrogenous wastes. And so it's really neat that they go from having way too much water to having not enough water at all over the course of the, you know, a feeding event, basically. What, when it, Okay, if you're drinking that much blood, wouldn't isn't there? Wouldn't you get iron toxicity too? Yeah, they have to deal with that. I forget exactly what the mechanism is, but people have looked oh. into it. Yep, there's the problem of iron toxicity. Um, hmm. There's a whole bunch of challenges. I'll send you another paper. Actually, I got another oh, paper speech. to send you. So I'm going to send you the current <laughs> biology, and I'm going to send you the blood one because I actually did a review uh, of blood feeding in bats, how it evolved, and how it's convergent on a lot of other animals that feed on blood, and how some hmm. of the like the anticoagulant that's in their saliva, how that uh, how that is similar to the anticoagulant in like ticks or other things. And there's just some really neat parallel evolutionary stories there that I think are just really beautiful. And fu- fundamentally, that's where all this bad stuff goes for me is like, it is beautiful. It It is full of surprises. It is full of great characters. And the more you learn about it, the more strange and wonderful it gets. And what I've learned doing journalism of science is that I, you know, I believe that was true of my little sliver of the world when I was doing the bats. But when you talk to astronomers or you talk to chemists or you talk to physicists, you know where this is going. It's the same for them, right? They, they are just as obsessed with the dust on a comet as I am about the saliva of a vampire bat. And no wonder, I mean, it's just as the, the more you go down that rabbit hole, the the greater it gets. The the best professional development I've ever done is starting my podcast because I talk to amazing people like you and mm. it's a different person every week. They love their thing. And I just, I just get goosebumps and I learn and I listen to it's the greatest. So yeah, yeah you know, you've I, got I a good, you you've got a good just, thing going. I, and I'm curious about like, I mean, do we have a minute? Can I ask you a couple yeah, of questions? Go, Am I allowed? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Okay. Um. So, so there's these dogs. So how does this, how do two <laughs> dogs turn into a, whole brand of science communication like what how walk me through how that worked <laughs> by accident um so it the, this i've told this story lots to media because our accounts are so big right hmm. um at, like we had a golden that died very sadly and uh we got a puppy like after we were done grieving and we got a little bernice mountain dog puppy and I don't know if you've ever seen a little Bernice mountain dog puppy, but of the things that are cute on the earth, and I know bats are cute, the, the Bernice mountain dog puppies are like little bear club cubs. They're just so yeah. freaking cute. So we were just sharing videos on social media of him just because like, I can't believe this creature exists. It looks like he came out of a cartoon. Um, so we got a little bit of growth from that, but burners are lar- giant breed dogs. So by the time he was like 10 months old, he was as big as a person. <laughs> that's Bunsen. And he was in my classroom and I was like, you know what? I think he's so big. He could wear my lab coat. And w- I was training him to do stuff. And he's like the greatest best boy in the world. Like he just loves to do anything that you ask him. So I would like put his lap, put my lab coat on fit him perfectly. Like uh, I'm six, three. So it fit this dog like <laughs> perfectly. And then I was like, oh my God, I bet you he could wear my safety glasses. So I threw my safety glasses on him and he's like, do, 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 that's okay. That's fine with me. Um, and then I snapped a picture of him and the rest is history because I started to then, instead of tweeting from the perspective of a person, I tweeted from the perspective of dogs of teaching science. 
and it took off. And then during COVID, we got a golden retriever beaker and we trained her the same way. So now she wears lab coats and stuff. So it's a whole thing. It is a whole thing. What happened? (laughs) And so like, so Twitter is the main place where you put out content. Um, but you've got other stuff going as well. You've got this podcast. Yeah. Twitter's the big one. Uh, I think we're close to 90,000 followers on TikTok. So TikTok's pretty big. Uh, Instagram's growing. We're on Facebook and LinkedIn, but yeah, Twitter's the big one. And then I got frustrated with the character limit. This was before Elon Musk took over and Mm -hmm. changed a bunch of stuff, but you had a character limit on Twitter. So I was like, man, I just can't get my thoughts out. And I kind of wanted to get my thoughts out as a person, not a dog. Mm. So (laughs) uh, that's why I started the podcast. Yeah, more characters in podcasts than there are in tweets, even with the changes that they've made. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) That's cool. Well, that's great. And so you, and so when, timeline me on this, like how long has it been since that day that you put a lab coat on your dog? So yeah, Bunsen is six. It was about five years ago. Wow. And then I didn't have any social media experience or anything. It really started to grow about a year pre-COVID. And then when we got Beaker, that was the, that was the magic sauce was like this little golden retriever puppy and this enormous Bernice mountain dog. Right. Right. And they were got along like the greatest together that created a huge like thing. And then I started writing jokes every Friday like this. I don't know if you're interested in this, but every Friday I I write jokes called texts from Bunsen (laughs) where Bunsen, our dog texts people in the family and that blew up. So we've got like people that wait every week for my jokes on Friday so like that also accelerated the growth on Twitter too. How did you come up with that idea? Because that sounds like a strategy that is born from knowing how this stuff works. No, I I dropped my phone and it landed on his paws. And then I was like, oh, I wonder what, I wonder what a, he would say if he could text me. Huh. And, <laughs> and then I tried it out and I wasn't good at it to start with, but I've had like three years at it. And now it's like, it's, we just released our book, our second book actually just came out last week. Amazing. Um, text from Bunsen, volume two. That's amazing. And so like, because I have had the benefit of working within like Discovery Channel and, Mm -hmm. you know, other sort of like old school media. And I'm still sort of like blown away by the way things sort of take off with, with, uh, with social media. And it's funny because on, on the one hand, it does have, you often hear these stories like yours where that are like, oh, just kind of a fun idea. And it, it took off and you say it as though, it wasn't tons of work, but oh, I mean, it is, it's a, it's a part, it's a full-time job. No, <laughs> I believe you. I believe you. And so like, what is, what is the job now? Is it looking at trends and, and planning content that'll fit what's hot right now? Is it thinking about a, a strategy of what your year looks like? Or is it, I mean, cause you, it gives the impression that it's just like, Oh, I just, a funny joke just came to me and it happened to be a Friday, which is when they happen to come to me every week. And like, no, of course <laughs> not. Like you're, you're planning them ahead, but yeah. like, how, what is, what is a, a day at that full-time job? How does it built? What do you do? Yeah. So I have a full-time job as a teacher, right? right. So I, ha- I work on the weekends and I plan my content for the week and I've got all of these scheduling programs that go out to Twitter and go to Instagram, which bounce to Facebook. Um, so like I'm pretty organized on the weekend and I spend most of Saturday planning the content for the week, which includes posts, tweets, photos, articles, lining up the articles I'm going to do on my podcast. And then of course, like shooting short form video, if I've got any energy left. So it's, it's a lot of work. Yeah, it is a lot of work. What do your students think of it? The funny thing is they don't care. 
right? They're huh. high they're high school kids. Like if you came to talk about bats, they would love that they're talking you're talking about bats, but they would not be impressed that you were on TV. They would not care. Right. They would just because they've got their own lives. They don't they if they get five likes on their Snapchat, that's more than you know, somebody from TV coming to talk to them about bats. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it no, keeps I believe me grounded, you. right? It doesn't matter how big my social media stuff grows. Um, I mean, I, I'm there prime I'm there to teach them. They don't I'm not there to show them Bunsen and Beaker. So <laughs> Right, right. Of course, of course. But yeah. you're also there. I mean, I, I really believe, and this gets to, you know, my philosophy around all this stuff is I believe that you lead to, to inspire people to become scientists or to be curious or whatever you want to call it. You have to show that you yourself are doing that. And so the fact that you're trying something that's hard and you're, you know, pushing your, your limits and trying new stuff and, and coming up with ideas and then testing them and then finding ways to refine them. Like it's, it's inspiring. And I, I have to think that even if your students don't quote unquote care, I mean, high school students have to pretend they don't care about anything. That's just the genre, right? That's just yeah. like what you do in high school. But I, I mean, the fact that you're doing that, I mean, it, even if they'll never say it to you, you're you're demonstrating something that I think has pedagogical value. <laughs> yeah, I I, know, I I think I'm being a little sarcastic. They they don't show that they care, but when I bring Bunsen and Beaker to school, I tell you they're taking selfies with those dogs for street cred on social media. Sure, sure, sure. Uh, as you yeah. would, as would I, as would I, frankly, as yeah. would I. Yeah. That's amazing. Okay, thank you. I had so I was just really curious about how you how you ended up on that side of the microphone, and that's that's great. Yeah, it's yeah. I have no media training or anything like that. Um, I, and I, I just like you, you kind of probably were just thrown into the fire, and you had to learn it as you go, and got better as by practicing too. A little bit, yes, but not completely. I did get some training, and I did find oh. it really helpful. I, I I've had a couple days working with coaches who helped me with my performance, and every oh, time I'm cool. like, wow, that made a huge difference. I recommend yeah. it, and it cool. I, I recommend it because it's um, I have a lot of respect for people who are experts at things, and like because mm -hmm. the thing is, I, I mean, I find it really frustrating when somebody thinks that they know a lot about something that I've spent a lot of time thinking about. Right. And it doesn't happen often, but if like, let's, cause my piece of the academic turf is so small. I know a lot about bats. And so if somebody starts throwing around knowledge about bats and pretending they know things and they don't, I, I have to get involved. I have to correct them. Like I can't let it go. I, I, I get very mm -hmm. worked up other mm -hmm. things I can sort of let slide. And so, you know, this idea that people have spent this much time thinking about how you do a good job of being a guest on a talk show, that is a skill set that you could wing it your first time and just see how it goes and learn by making mistakes. Or you could spend a day with somebody who's an expert on that and they could probably make you do better at your first try. And so mm -hmm. I, when I was, I, I got to be on um, the Tonight Show with Jay Leno. Mm -hmm. And, um, and when I did that, uh, I got a day of media training from Animal Planet. I was hosting a show for them about parasites and they didn't want me to look bad. And so they gave me a, a day of coaching and it was, it was, I learned a ton. I mean, a lot of it, it does come instinctively and comes from practice, but I do, I will say getting, getting coaching, getting training really does make a difference. I was going to ask you about some of your media stuff. So I like you, you dropped the big one. That was going to be my question. Like, how was it being on the tonight show? Were you excited or terrified or both? Uh, mostly terrified, wow. mostly terrified. I, I mean, like, that's Jay Leno. Like at that time he was yeah. the biggest thing on TV. Yep. Yep. And, uh, the other <laughs> guest on that show was Cameron Diaz. It no was, way. oh yeah. No way. 
No. Okay. Well, yeah. So I got the training and the training was like, here's how you can look like you're comfortable when you're not Here, right. memorize your story, have it all like worked out. Like yeah. I knew what he was going to want to talk about. I was hosting this show about parasites. I have the great fortune of having had a parasite once I got a bot fly in my head when I was in Belize oh doing that work. And <laughs> it's a, it's a great story and but it's a long story and so i worked with this media training person to get it to about 30 seconds and so i knew he was going to ask my story i had rehearsed exactly how i was going to say it to him and so i get out there i was so scared i could like i couldn't hear i couldn't see i was like i was so nervous (laughs) but i knew exactly what to do because he asked the question and i was like oh i'll tell you about it i have this uh, well i'm in belize and la da 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 and i get a mosquito bite and it starts to grow and i pause at the right places and i finish the story and it all goes well and but but the thing is that i had trained to be the only person out there i had no idea how to interact if anybody else was out there it was just going to be me and jay and jay leno like he had cameron diaz on first because she's cameron diaz and believe it or not more people were wanting to see cameron diaz than me i know and she i think was dating a rod i want to say some <laughs> baseball player i think um so there like she was going to have to leave early but she came yeah. and she did the she did the appearance and then she was going to go but then she's out there and then jay leno says will you stick around for our next guest for this parasite guy and she said sure and so then i go out there and there's cameron flipping diaz on the oh stage my God. and a live audience and i'm like i don't know how to interact with her at all like i have no idea what to do so i go out there and i basically just ignored her i just like looked at jay and like told my story and all this and then at one point she starts talking and i like, turn to her like what where why are you talking i don't know what to do and so like i tried to like engage but it's all a blur and it's also really hard to find on the internet like it did happen Mm -hmm. but it's like it's it's i had this feeling while i was out there that this will be what i'm remembered for i'm the guy that once was on tv with cameron diaz and jay leno (laughs) but you can't even find it on the internet nobody remembers it and it is a great lesson in the fact that even though I didn't do a great job, it really doesn't matter. It really doesn't. And the other thing I remember is that I care much more about the vampire bats on the treadmill. I'm much more proud of that, even though it's much more niche. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's like, because I did that yeah. uh, to get sort of shoved out onto a stage and told to dance monkey and you dance, um, is, is different. But, um, yeah, it was a, it was a great experience, and I was terrified the whole time. But it was exhilarating. It was the kind of terrified where you know you're doing something great, yeah. And that you'll remember this your whole life, and of course you're going to do it. And it's so scary, but just keep going, just keep going. Yeah, I'm just sitting with your story right now. I'm just smiling from ear to ear. It's just <laughs> so cool. So yeah, cool. I, so I did that one, and then it it went great. But then um, I got asked to appear on the Craig Ferguson show after that. And oh. Craig Ferguson is uh, a very different host He's than Jay Leno. He's a loose cannon. He's a loose cannon. And whereas with Jay Leno, I knew exactly what questions he was going to ask in what order. With uh, Craig Ferguson, I had no clue. I like I told my stories to the producer, <laughs> and then terrifying. I said, "I said, what is he going to ask me?" And she laughed at me. She's like, "I don't know. He's just going to." talk to you and i was like oh no so for that one i really had to be present i really had to listen i really had to try to respond and i had some stories ready to go but and you watch he ended up having me back a whole bunch of times and so i was on that show i think seven or eight times total nice yeah it was nice it was amazing i was like backstage with weird al yankovic i was backstage with um (laughs) jeff bridges like it was it was so 
fun. And by the seventh or eighth time, you start to like not be in a terror mode where you're mm. so terrified you can't remember what's happening. Like you start to actually be present. And yeah. but th- that was the real key was to listen to Craig Ferguson and to try to be present in those moments and have good conversations with him. And it w- he would make me laugh so hard because he's just he's he's present, right? And yeah. so you start talking about whatever duck penis exploding or something like that and then he it's always penises with me but he just he takes it and he runs with it he can make it 10 times funnier than the stuff I, I, like i'm bringing up the bat penis or i'm bringing up the the duck penis and it's already pretty funny but he takes it and then he makes it 10 times funnier and it, that's yeah. that's why he was just amazing at that job i love i could listen to these stories for hours man <laughs> this is great i love it <laughs> Um, but I'm going to be cognizant of our time together. I know uh, if we have a two-hour interview, that's not fair to either of us. Uh, or the people that are stuck listening to it. My God. Like, how how long that. is this episode? We can, we Come on, Jason. <laughs> we have a pretty we have a pretty, uh, a pretty good fan base. I think they'd think it would be great. But um, we've barely scratched the surface with my list of things, everybody. <laughs> so just a heads up. We're, we're going to talk about some of our, our standard questions that everybody expects that we, we do on the science podcast, but just know that I have a list of follow-up questions a mile long. Um, the first, the first question of our standard ones is, uh, if you could share a pet story with us. Oh, I do love, so I get my pet stories. I'll, I'll be quick, but I had a Boston Terrier named Elliot and mm-hmm. I got him when I was a postdoc. So I'd finished my PhD and then I'd moved to Brown uh, university in Providence. And, uh, I decided I was going to get a puppy and I didn't know if I was going to be a professor at a place where I had tons of space in like Nebraska, or if I was going to end up being a professor in a tiny apartment, uh, living in New York city. So I, I really didn't, didn't know what to expect. So I got a dog that would fit in an apartment because I figured that dog will be happy no matter where I end up. And I want a companion. So mm-hmm. I got this cute Boston Terrier. His name's oh. Elliot. He was great. Uh, he's passed away since, but he lived a great uh, long 14-year life. But while he was a puppy, uh, he very early was uh, the thing that caused this woman named Shelby to come across the street and say hi. So she was walking with a grad student. I knew that grad student, so we were friends of a friend. Um, mm-hmm. We had a friend in common, uh, but I met her when I had this puppy. And I'm pretty convinced that that was sort of what really helped me uh, – get her attention. And so now she's my wife. She's the mother of my kids. Oh. And, uh, and that dog is, is the, uh, the catalyst, the enzyme that started that chemical reaction. So I'll always be indebted to that cute little dog who, oh uh, who won her over. I, people are tearing up right now. Listening, <laughs> I guarantee you. We, I broke down a study that talked about how, uh, dogs are literally the best thing you can do when you're dating. Um, as long <laughs> as the person also like dogs, Oh yeah. Otherwise it's an instant deal breaker. Like if you're looking for a mate and that other mate likes dogs and you have dogs and you have a dog, poo, like five extra points of attractiveness or something on the study. Um, but if that person is a cat person done instant over game over done over for you. Well, you've really saved yourself a lot of trouble in that stage. Either way, the dog helped you, right? (laughs) I mean, if you, you don't want to live with, you don't want to be with somebody that doesn't let you enjoy your love of dogs. Like, (laughs) yeah. That, that's terrible. So, so great. That's the dog coming through yet again. That's right. Dog saving you from potentially a bad kind yeah. of bad match there. Dodging and it was the same with cats. Like if you have a cat and the other person is a cat, it's an instant, like hmm. five points of attractiveness. So I'm glad, uh, glad your dog helped you out there. Yeah. <laughs> 
That's a great pet story. Um, the other standard questions we ha- sorry again. The other standard question we have is the super fact. It's something we ask all our guests to share. Something they know that kind of blows people away. If you haven't been blown away by this interview, I don't know what's <laughs> going on. But uh, do you have one in the pocket for us, Dan? A yeah, super- you know what? I'll tell you the thing I learned today. So okay. there is a, a new star system that's just been found. If I remember correctly, it's called HD one one zero zero seven nine. It's mm-hmm. just been discovered by one of these. So there are a bunch of these uh, these satellites out in space that that are telescopes that look at stars, and the stars have a brightness to them. But every once in a while, the the star will dim slightly and then get bright again, and that dimming is because there's a planet passing in front of it. And so if you watch it for a long time, you can see how often the planet goes by and you can figure out what the period of the orbit is, like how frequently it goes by. And then you know mm-hmm. how far it is from the star. And based mm-hmm. on how much of the light it blocks, you can figure out how, it's, how big it is. And you do this math and you can find exoplanets this way. They found this system uh, and it's 100 light years away and it was blinking with a frequency that did not make sense. It, like the, it was blinking... But the numbers just weren't, it it didn't make any sense. They could not figure out why it was blinking so weird. It wasn't just that there were multiple planets. It was that there were multiple planets, but they were not totally independent of each other. And what they realized is that there's this, this planetary system where the orbits are in harmony. They are in, um, they are in even ratios of each other. So for example, one will go around two times in the time it takes another planet to go around three times. And then another one will go around six times in exactly that amount of time. And that arrangement isn't supposed to happen. What we understood from our solar system is that if if you have two planets that are in harmony like that, one of them is going to get either thrown into space or (laughs) thrown into the sun or thrown into Jupiter. You just can't do it. And so our understanding of our solar system is that there may have been a bunch of planets that were say a harmony of Jupiter at one point, but they got thrown around and they're gone. Now they got selected against. And yet here we have this star system that was just discovered where that dance is happening. All of them are really close to their star. They're all closer to their star than Mercury is to our sun. And they're all, all six of them are in this dance. And according to these scientists, it has not been perturbed for they estimate four billion years. If a, if if a big planet goes by or a big comet goes by or any of them get bumped or whatever, it's going to throw the whole thing off and they're all going to go get <laughs> destroyed. So it's this like very fragile thing that just got found that nobody expected to find. And that was just today. Uh, to me, the beauty of science is that it really plays to the easily distracted, uh, easily sort of enamored brain. And And there's just so much that you just that nobody dreamt of that before it was found and i just i love that about science and so usually it's biology that gives me those kinds of stories but today it was space that's cool that's cool i love space stories but i love biology stories too and that is a super fact looking at our planet our system be like those guys are screwed up what's wrong with them you know <laughs> right, like, right. They have no rhythm at all <laughs> yeah exactly yeah no that's i mean that's one of the things it doesn't look habitable because they're all closer to mm-hmm. their they're all way too close but i think there's a quote from one of the scientists saying like we you know we're going to keep watching it if we find out there are planets in the in the goldilocks zone a little farther away where there could be liquid water then this easily becomes the most interesting place that we know about in the galaxy, like other than where we live, obviously, but it's, it becomes like just really exciting. Cool. Cool. Well, that's a super fact. Thanks, Dan. So appreciate that share. Yeah, you bet. 
we're we're at the end of the chat, everybody. This has gone by way too fast. Uh, I think my wife is probably wondering why I was laughing so hard upstairs, but it was <laughs> this is a brilliant discussion, sir. Are you on social media? Can people connect, follow you somewhere? Yeah, I'm on Instagram. I'm um my name is Dan Riskin on Instagram. Okay. So D-A-N-R-I-S-K-I-N. Yeah. And uh, if you really want to nerd out, um, I have a website, Noctilio.com. Noctilio mm-hmm. is the genus of the fishing bat. So uh, oh. N-O-C-T-I-L-I-O. That's um that's my website. And so you can find stuff there. I put little science quizzes and stuff there. And then um yeah. And then I guess if people want to know more about bats, which obviously is going to happen, um, I really recommend an outfit out of uh, the States called Bat Conservation International. They do really good work and they have they have a pretty good website. But one thing that they have that it makes for a nice gift as you get into the holidays, um, a membership to Bat Conservation International, I think is like 25 bucks a year for students. Mm-hmm. It's super cheap and you get four physical magazines a year. And so if you've got anybody in your life that is kind of curious about biology and likes ugly, weird, cute animals. Um, that might be something to think about. It's just, uh, and you know, back conservation international would love your support. I'm sure. Okay. We will, we'll make sure some of those links or all of them are in our show notes, everybody. And, uh, Bunsen and Beaker just followed you on Instagram, Dan. Yeah. Oh, that, that's, yeah, that's good. I got street follower. cred. I got street cred, man. This has been a treat, Dan. I so appreciate you giving up your busy, busy time to talk to us on the Science Podcast. Um, thanks. You're, this was a gem of a discussion. Wow. The, the pleasure is mine. And thank you for doing this podcast. And thank you for preaching the gospel about science. But also, thank you for being a high school science teacher. That is a, a job that needs to be done by people who do it right. And they need to be invested. They need to care. It doesn't get paid enough. It doesn't get valued enough. And I thoroughly appreciate the work you do in a classroom. And if any other teachers are listening, like, honestly, I just cannot thank you enough for the work you do. My, I mean, I, I care about it as a scientist who's trying to, you know, bring science to the world, but also I'm a dad and I have kids that are interacting with teachers. And so I just, I see the effect that teachers have. And so thank you for your work as a teacher. In addition to all this. Hey everybody. I just want to tell you a little bit about this amazing website we've been using since almost the start of the science podcast called Zencaster. Here are the three reasons why we love Zencaster so much. Number one, it's so easy. Log into your browser and start recording right away. It's studio quality sound and up to 4K video with your guests. That's right, you can do audio only or you can select a video as well. There's also so many backups to ensure you always have your recordings and they aren't lost even if the connection is unstable. Number two, you'll sound great. Have you ever worried what you're going to sound like when it's a recording? Zencaster has great post-production processes to make you sound really smooth and it automatically removes those ums and ahs in your recording. And lastly, it's everything you need all in one. From Zencaster, you can distribute it to Spotify, Apple, and other major destinations. Go to Zencaster.com backslash pricing and use my code BunsenBurner and you'll get 30% off your first month of any Zencaster paid plan. I want you to have the same easy experiences I do for all of my podcasting and content needs. It's time to share your story. Check out the link in our show notes and it'll take you right there to check Zencaster.com out. Thanks, everybody. Okay, it is time for story time with me, Adam. If you don't know what story time is, story time is when we talk about stories that have happened within the past one or two weeks. Uh, You know what? I will start... 
I, my story isn't very exciting. I'll let you know that right away. I've been studying for my finals and my lab exam. Um, and yeah, uh, my, my story isn't very exciting because I haven't really spent much exciting time around the dogs, but, um, I've noticed that Bunsen is a lot more playful with me now. Like he gets excited. And then when I play with him, he's a lot more playful and he, he jumps around a bit more. And usually he's a couch potato and laying down and fun police and stopping all the playing. But once in, he, he likes to play with me sometimes. I get down low on the ground and I butt my head into his gently. And then he, he backs up and he like starts, he like pounces at me, but not really like pounces at me. He like drops down and bows. It's, it's cute. He also likes to jump up on the couch with me now. So it's, um, he likes spending time with me a little bit more, I think. But yeah, like, uh, like I said, not very exciting. Um, probably stuff that I've said before, but, um, I've been studying for my, for my, for my lab exams and my, and my final. So yeah, uh, that's my story. Dad, do you have a story? Uh, yeah, sure. So I've noticed that with Bunsen too. I think it's because he's cooped up a bit and I think he's frustrated that there's no winter. The El Nino is causing weirdo weather. It rained yesterday and it rained today. It rained in December. I can't remember the last time it rained in December. What is the in fact, El Nino? I think I, what? What is the El Nino? It's the warming trend that we're in. It causes oh, really see. weird. Yeah, it causes really weird weather. And like this is the weirdest weather that I can remember. It raining in December. Normally we have snow up to our waists and there's very little, if any snow and it rained. So yeah, Bunsen does, has been acting a lot more playful. He took a toy today and he destroyed it. That's totally out of the normal for him. He went and got a toy and he shredded it. (laughs) So as Chris says, he's just working out his feelings. So I don't know what he's feeling. Maybe frustration. Not sure, but that's Bunsen. And uh, I've been taking the dogs on some dark walks because by the time we get home, it's dark. It's just this weird time of the year where we're teaching, we're working long hours and we leave in darkness and come home in darkness. So when it's time to walk the dogs, it's just dark. That's about to change because, you know, Christmas holidays is coming up and it'll be good to get out in the sunlight with the dogs. But for right now, it's just eternal darkness except for the weekend. And that's my story. All right, mom, do you have a story? I sure do. I have been doing Advent adventures with Bunsen and Beaker and with Ginger, and the dogs are loving it. They love their treats. They love the attention, and Ginger likes it too. Well, she didn't like the smelly smelt. She said, no, that's not a good treat. But then she also um, sometimes likes her toy and sometimes doesn't. Most of the time, she doesn't like her toy. But if you watch on December 6th, um, she did like her spring toy. So there's 24 days of Advent Adventures. And um, if you get a chance, you can see them on Twitter and see the dogs and cat every day enjoying their toy. Well, Ginger gets a toy and everybody else gets treats. And that's my story. All right. Thank you so much for listening to my section of the podcast. And thank you for sticking around till the end of this podcast episode. Yeah, I'll see everyone in the next one. Bye-bye. That's it for this week's show. Thanks for coming back week after week to listen to the Science Podcast. 
Special thanks to our guest this week, Dr. Dan Riskin. And also shout out to the Paw Pack. The support of our community makes the Science Podcast possible. If you want to hear your name at the end of the episode, check the show notes and sign up to be a member. Take it away, Chris. Bianca Hyde, Mary Ryder, Tracy Domingu, Susan Wagner, Andrew Lynn, Helen Chin, Tracy Halberg, Amy C., Jennifer Smathers, Laura Stephenson, Holly Birch, Brenda Clark, Anne Uchida, Peggy McKeel, Terry Adam, Debbie Anderson, Sandy Brimer, Tracy Linebaugh, Marianne McNally, Fun Lisa, Shelley Smith, Julie Smith, Diane Allen, Brianne Haas, Linda Sherry, Carol McDonald, Catherine Jordan, Courtney Proven, Donna Craig, Wendy, Diane, Mason and Luke, Liz Button, Kathy Zerker, and Ben Rathert. For science, empathy, and cuteness. Uh. <laughs>